Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, you're sure to find your next closet go-to from American Giant. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code S-T-A-P-L-E, 2-0. So, you know, if you throw a change-up kind of low three-quarters, it'll spin on its side and that'll get it to sink. But this started rotating over the top, and the more I kept pronating my wrist, the more and more it rolled over the top. And I just knew it moved like hell. Welcome into another episode of Baseball Americas from Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Try to make this a quick intro because it's a long episode, a worthwhile episode, trust me. Today I'm talking to Daniel Herrera, former big league left-hander with the Reds. While I want the intro to be quick, I cannot express how enjoyable it was to talk to Daniel and walk through his career. He is a 5'6 left-hander with a screwball who made it to the big leagues. There's not a ton of those around. He's also, as far as I know, the only 5'6 screwball lefty who is now working as an artist, which, which fits his style on the mound. I seriously, again, this episode is two hours. I could have talked to him for four hours hearing about his, just his strategy on the mound, how he thinks about hitters, how he thinks about moving the ball. Uh, really interesting story hearing how he went from, a again, a 5'6 lefty who threw 86-87 in Odessa, Texas, to co-Mountain West pitcher of the year at University of New Mexico all the way up through the big leagues. And then, of course, talking how he got into this, this post-career or post-playing career venture as an artist. You can check out his art at DanielRayHerrera.com. There's a lot of baseball stuff in there, a lot of non-baseball stuff in there. Uh, really cool stuff. I, I was thrilled to get the chance to talk to Daniel, both baseball and and non-baseball really enjoyable episode i hope you do stick around for it even if you have to take it on in parts uh, episodes of phenom to the farm drop every other tuesday if you enjoy this one subscribe wherever you get your podcast and go check out past interviews and if you haven't yet leave a five-star rating and a review on apple podcast also make sure to subscribe to baseballamerica.com and the ba podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news fall league just wrapped a lot of great ba coverage on that team top 30 is going to come out soon just a lot of good stuff happening at ba always a good time to be a subscriber and with that, let's talk to Daniel Herrera. All right, joining in for today's episode from Phenom of the Farm, who is a 45th round pick in the 06 draft by the Rangers out of the University of New Mexico, former big league left-hander Daniel Herrera. Daniel, thank you so much for joining from Phenom of the Farm. Very happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I've heard a lot about you. You have some some uh, some old teammates in common. Before we we dive into your baseball career, uh, tell folks about your artwork, where they can check it out, and and get a look into what you're doing. Because I was, I was browsing your website, a lot of cool, especially like baseball fan or not, like a lot of cool stuff. 
Awesome. I appreciate you checking it out. Yeah, I uh, went a different route besides baseball when I retired. I went to art school and uh, I went to Pratt Institute. And you can see my work that I'm doing now at DanielRayHerrera.com. And uh, got a lot of baseball stuff on there. I'm really trying to to find a style on my own and, and try to work with that. But um, do some freelance illustration. I just uh, be getting uh, published in Cream Magazine, a music publication. Um, so I am available. Uh, reach out if you want any, any artwork or baseball artwork. Definitely a, uh, we've had some different careers with guys where they've gone after baseball. This, I believe, artist is a first on the show. But um, look, looking forward to learn a little bit more about that down the road. Let's go back to uh, when you were coming up in, in Odessa, Texas. Uh, when did you first realize you had a future at the next level of baseball? So college baseball for you? Um, I would say maybe the first time I really thought that I had a chance, I had an opportunity um I think it was my sophomore year in high school you know I was I mean ever as from little league to the big leagues I was always the smallest one on the team was always. gonna ask height wise when you topped out uh I topped out I still don't know if I've topped out um but I definitely didn't hit a growth spurt we'll say that um yeah but my sophomore year in high school um we we're you know a, a preseason travel tournament and I threw a no hitter in the championship game. Um, and, you know, I was really proud of myself that, uh, you know, as a sophomore, I was able to do something like that and kind of, that was kind of the point where I thought, well, Hey, maybe, you know, this baseball can go further than this. So, you know, it was a kind of a, a light bulb moment that, you know, um, maybe I am, kind of good at this and maybe something can happen with this. What kind of pitcher were you in high school? Cause uh, guys who end up being quote unquote soft tossers in the big leagues. A lot of those times, those guys were flamethrowers in high school. Like how long could you throw it by guys? Or were you learning how to, how to beat guys with movement and location earlier than most? That was a much different pitcher. <laughs> I, if you would have asked me at 18, I would have told you I was a flamethrower. Oh yeah. Straight over the top. Um had like a 12-6 curveball. So I basically was a two-pitch uh pitcher. Um, and I was just trying to throw hard and trying to throw, you know, like the m- biggest curveballs, uh, kind of like start over your head and ends up at your ankles, kind of curveballs. Um, but you know, I I maybe topped out at like 86, 87 um in high school. So uh, I was just much different, you know, as high school ball ball goes, um, not a whole lot of velo, at least when I was playing, um, that hitters could catch up to, but it wasn't even until college until, you know, I tried to start sinking the ball, but, um, high school, I, you know, probably, probably needed to change earlier, but I, I was just over the top and I was all, all power then. <laughs> so uh, pre YouTube, pre before you could put your highlights up on, you know, it, easy for everyone to see. How did you get the word out about yourself out, out in West Texas? Well, we had a travel ball team, um, you know, in my teen years, my dad, and, um, we had some kids from Odessa, some kids from Midland. Um, we had a travel team called the West Texas Rattlers. So we would, 
you know, travel to big tournaments uh, all over the place and would kind of get get noticed um, before high school. And it really happened um, during my junior year um, summer. So after my high school summer, you know, we don't we didn't really get any scouts out there. It's all, uh, you know, Odessa a little bit. It's all football out there. Um, You know, during the football season, nothing else matters. And even during the spring baseball season, uh, spring football is bigger than baseball. Um, so not a whole lot of scouts out there uh, looking at the at the talent in West Texas. But um, my junior summer, my dad got me on a travel team in Farmington, New Mexico. Um, and the County Mac World Series are hosted in Farmington, New Mexico. So I got placed on a team in Farmington and we ended up winning the local um, league there and the local winner got to be in the Connie Mac World Series and you know with big um, big travel teams from around the country and even like Puerto Rico um, so it was actually there was the first time I got noticed by college coaches and um, most notably I, I threw up uh, I think I threw like five or six innings against Puerto Rico in that tournament and it was our only win as a team and I did really well. And, you know, lo and behold, Rich Allday was in the stands and he was the, the head coach at, at UNM at New Mexico. And, you know, kind of spoke with him after the game a little bit, um, didn't really think a whole lot of it. Um, but he was the right person to see me at the right time and, um, you know, signed a letter of intent that next that next fall. So that was the really kind of the first and only time I got noticed around um, high school to, to get to the next level. What was his pitch to you as to what he envisioned you as? Cause there's, there's frankly, there's not a lot of five foot six kids pitching in division one baseball being lefty helps a little bit, but still at the same time, it's not often that guys are, are pitching a five, six guy and saying, Hey, I want you to come here and be my Friday starter. What, what was that conversation like? Like what brought you to UNM? Um, it was really my only division one offer. I mean, I can't really tell you that Rich told me I was going to be a Friday or Saturday or Sunday night guy, or even the midweek guy. I think he was just like, like, Hey, I see something here. Uh, I think you could be a good fit. Um, what did but- the smaller schools even say? Cause again, it's rare that you're like all over, you know, Hey, we have got to sign the five, six guy to come here and anchor our rotation. The, the, I'll tell you that the college the colleges that recruited me were Odessa junior college, Midland junior college and Lubbock Christian. Oh, and which were was it D three school, but they were recruiting my brother to play baseball there too. So they wanted kind of like an older brother, younger brother package deal. Um, so my brother didn't end up going to college to play baseball. He went off and did t- did something totally different. So I think that even like took me off of their radar. So it was one of those things like, do I want to stay at home and play junior college, um, or go play Division one baseball and I was getting a full ride. They offered me a full ride. And so, you know, uh, the decision was made for me at that point. You know, I wasn't, 
I was eager to get out of uh, my hometown um, and without any promises or, or anything really valuable saying, you know, you can, you can be a starter for us. I just said, Hey, uh, uh, just tell me when and where to sign and, and I'll be there in the fall. Still seems like an easy choice. Uh, just thinking about what you're doing now, did you have any outside interests or passions outside of baseball? A lot of high school athletes are like my sport. It's all I want to do. You know, did, did you get into anything that was not baseball? Not one, not a thing. Um, you know, I was a, a typical kid in the in the fashion that I like to play video games, and I really liked music. I like, you know, I I had a early love of music that I you know I go and watch live shows as much as possible now. Um, but as far as thinking about doing anything else, as soon as I really got into college, and I I saw the tiniest little glimmer of light in the big league tunnel. I was, I was plan a from, from the jump. So, uh, I would have loved knowing what I do now to always carry a sketchbook with me and, and start kind of honing some skills. Cause you know, in baseball, there's a lot of downtime, a lot of bus rides, a lot of, a lot of hotel time that you just kind of throw out the window. <laughs> um, but no baseball was, plan a and plan b and plan c so there was not there was nothing else at that time this is a complete exit off the highway from your career but i kind of want to run with it you're talking about you wish you could have been walking around with a sketchbook and stuff like that as an artist odessa is not the most beautiful place i've ever been in my life like i said before recording i'm very fond of it Uh, as listeners know like that's where i went to college I, i mean it's you know it's a desert it's a desert it's an oil town is there, can you find beauty or inspiration or whatever you are looking for in your art, even in a place like Odessa, which I would not say is rich with the arts? There is a reason there are no landscape artists in West Texas. <laughs> uh, it doesn't really inspire um, a, bi- a big color palette e- either. You know, if I just kind of break it down to shapes and colors, um, it's flatland and a lot of browns and yellows. So um, even in just like the most basic of sense, it's a no, the the easy answer is no. Um, Got to get out of Odessa to get inspired. Well, you know, I mean, I'm more inspired um, with characters, with people. Um, So I've, I've definitely, even in Odessa from a very young age, um, ran across a lot of characters and a lot of, uh, great faces. And, you know, I can't now I can't be in a conversation with someone and not map out their face while I'm talking to them about how I would draw them. So I, I even have conversations different that I'm like looking at your cheeks or your nose or like, man, this, 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 uh, guy has a really good chin. I'd really like to draw his chin. That makes uh, this zoom very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, but no, I think I think I'm more interested in characters, and maybe that's what West Texas gave me is to not really look elsewhere, but uh, but at the people. Yeah, I mean, since it is not a college town, when you go out, you interact with a lot of locals, and the locals in Odessa are like the locals I've at other place. I've never met people like the people I've met in Odessa. So a lot of a uh, lot of characters to say the well, least. But good or bad, uh, they're all characters yeah, out there. Yeah. Let's get to Albuquerque. 
you you roll up as a freshman. How many side eyes did you get when you said, "Oh yeah, I'm a pitcher"? Um, I got a lot. I mean, quite a lot. I mean, that I just remember getting there and meeting uh, Jeff Grady. He was the catcher there, and he's a just a full grown man, you know. And I'm 140 pounds, barely five six, and like biggest grin on my face. Like I'm here. I'm ready to pitch now. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a moment that I kind of had to backpedal in my own ego and just be like, all right, I have a lot of work to do to, to even, to even get some pitching time, get some innings at this level. You know, these are some grown men, um, that I have not encountered yet, but, um, I rarely identify with the guests on the show, but I also rolled up to college five, six and 145 pounds and very baby face. And the first person I met was Evan Gaddis, who is a grown man. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I, I, I know exactly everything that you went through as far as, as far as those conversations. Well, those, the, just visually the difference is, you know, is, uh, very noticeable and, um, I more or less had the older guys on the team kind of, um, take me under their wing for whatever reason. Um, you know, maybe they thought I needed help or that I needed, uh, my eyes were like too glassy. I needed to like get into focus a little bit or, or whatever the case is. But, um, I really liked the, uh, the older, um, upperclassmen when I was, when I was a freshman there, they really helped me kind of um, get my stuff together and, and, uh, and kind of focus on what I needed to do. When you got to campus and when you started throwing and putting your work in that fall, you said in high school, you're like 86, 87 straight over the top in division one baseball, especially pitching in Albuquerque. That is like being an iron Mike. That is like, that is like being a pitching machine. When you first, when did you learn you needed to kind of switch up your style of how you went about things? And then how, what is the testing process with that? Like of how much tinkering did you have to do to, to figure out how to compete at that level? Well, the, the, the process had to happen very quickly because baseballs were not landing in fall practices. Um, you know, I don't think I did very well at all. And it was, uh, one of those things that was mentioned to me early. Uh, I had a pitching coach there, Ryan Brewer, um, and we got along really well and, you know, we kind of clicked um, as far as him trying to whittle me into a sinker baller. And, um, you know, we changed that rather quickly and I kind of went to a low three quarters and I got to be a bit more rotational in my delivery. Um, so just trying to find the strike zone with the sinker, was really, you know, the first thing on the list. But at that point too, as soon as I, I kind of went to that lower slot, um, my curveball vanished and I didn't have a curveball and I worked with the changeup and that was even just kind of barely functional. So it was, it was one of those instances that I had to make the change and it was necessary, but what else do I have? And it was kind of like those fall practices were kind of like scrambling to, to find a secondary pitch. And like, I'm not even thinking about a, a, a third pitch. I'm really trying to 
find a strike zone with the fastball and do something off of that fastball. I mean, well, even in high school, I had, I had good command. Um, so it didn't take me a really, really long time. I was never really wild. Um, you know, making that, that, that move down to that low three quarters, but, um, having no off speed in Albuquerque was a death sentence. Um, but you know, I somehow, I somehow made it work and, um, you know, fall increasingly got better, but I, I mean, it's definitely humbling to, um, to be out in the mountains when you're not used to it. So is that like every bullpen during the week? It's, are you just like, okay, I'm going to try this grip. Hey, let me know if this does something like, are you just experimenting the, the entire, is there any like panic because you, you have this whole fall before the, before the spring season, was there any worry as to, I'm not going to figure something out and I'm going to get redshirted or worse? No, I didn't, I didn't really panic. Um, you know, one thing that really kind of lit a fire, uh, under me, um, you know, and it was my, is our pitching coach being like, like brutally honest. He, you know, kind of split us up in the, the pitching group that he had. And he basically put the uh, professional who he thought was prospects to go to professional ball on one side of the room. He put the rest of us on a different side of the room. And I was in the non-prospect side. And he said, what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, let these guys have the opportunity to get seen, you know, to not get hurt. Um, we want to give them the best opportunity to get to that level. But you guys, we're going to use you guys up and you won't have the you won't have the actual opportunities. But if we need innings and especially midweek, like we're going to wear you guys out. And I was like in my head, I was like cussing him out. You know, I was like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, I thought it was just a very strange way to kind of divide your pitching staff into prospects and non-prospects. And kind of from then on, it lit a fire. Like I'll show, like, I'll show you what I can do. And um, I think they had me slated to be a reliever um, my freshman year. I don't, I didn't, I don't know if they, had me as like a red shirt candidate. Um, but they definitely didn't have me as a starter. Um, and it was kind of one of those things that I worked myself into a, a uh, an opportunity. Um, and just thankful they gave it to me. How did you work yourself into that opportunity? Cause like, it is the thing with the, you know, a lot of lefties, if you're not, if you're not pumping, it's like, okay, he's the, he's the reliever. He's the lefty only guy. If you're the, you know, really the soft guy, like what did you have to show to say, give me one chance on the bump? Cause a lot of the times in college, again, if you're not the prospect or you're not one of the guys, you get that, get that one start. If, if you're going to get a start at all and you have to make good on it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the way yeah, UNM was, is, was kind of shaped at that time. Um, it was it, as a mountain conference goes, it's, it's so much hitting is involved. Uh, you know, there's games that are, are one that are 15 to 13. Um, and offense was more prized than pitching. So, I mean, I think it could be, it was just a, an advantage that I had that, you know, maybe at that certain year or before that they didn't recruit, um, pitching or starters as as much as they did in the past 
Um, but they, we had tons of dudes that could hit. I mean, we had, we had guys that can, could bop, but as far as pitching, I, I don't, when I was there, I didn't see like a ton of competition, like, Oh, he's a starter. He's a starter. He's a starter. I don't have room here. It was one of those things that they were looking for someone to kind of step up and be a starter. Um, and, you know, I, I think during kind of the fall, um, you know, it's kind of like the, the cherry and silver se- uh, series that, that, you know, colleges have kind of at the end um, that we had at New Mexico, I threw really well. And um, I think that kind of just kind of pushed me over the edge that, that I was capable of, of being a starter and being effective. Your first two years in college, your freshman sophomore year, it's you, you've got high numbers, high ERA, uh, high average against. I mean, again, the Mountain West is a certainly a hitters conference. Albuquerque is just a just not a good place to pitch. What did you take from those years? Like, what you know, there's always oh, what did you learn from struggling? Like, there's that cliche, but what did you learn? Like, what what did you learn about yourself that needed to be fixed or needed to change? in order to then have the junior and senior year that you had, like, where is, I like, I like using the video game analogy. Like you're playing NCAA football and a guy gets like plus seven speed or something in the off season or something when he changes, but like what, what, what attributes did you, you know, did you add on to that suddenly allowed you to, to have a ridiculous amount of success as an upperclassman? Well, I think the first thing it, it, showed me was how to take an ass kicking. <laughs> um, really, I mean, to just really have like a it's short a, memory. It's a true skill in college. It's, I mean, just to, just to have a short memory from, from one outing to the next, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, a few days uh, in between or a week in between, really like having no emotion about it shortly after and starting the process of understanding why. Um, you know, why you did good or why you did bad. But I think, you know, there was, I had a five and a half ERA my freshman year and then a, a better win loss record my sophomore year, but I had a, over a six. Um, and I can tell you, I thought my sophomore year, I was really good, <laughs> but I had, I had plenty of starts that I went maybe an inning and a third and gave up nine runs. And it was the, you know, kind of things got out of control in a hurry. And at that point, I didn't know how to slow the game down enough to understand the situation and find a way to get out of it. I was just pitching and pitching and pitching. Um, So maybe that was another thing. That was definitely another thing it helped me do is to slow the game down. Just take a beat, like take a breath do exactly what you're you've been you've been like planning on doing have an attack and do it instead of like oh my gosh i need to i need to throw the kitchen sink at them and and see what happens but i i think it was a mixture of of learning how to pitch in the mountains meaning meaning moving the ball down sinking um uh, getting more ground balls um, that was a tough process. I mean, obviously anything in the mountains moves, um, farther and harder, but really once I got more ground balls, I was more successful and it was as simple as that. Um, so really it was, it was, 
really trying to find the bottom of the strike zone and then trying to understand the ass kickings that I got. <laughs> how many things could you do with just your fastball? Like how can you make a fastball a weapon at 82, 84? Uh, you know, the difference between run and sink. Um, at When I was there, I remember holding the fastball differently. You know, I had, I spread my fingers, you know, on the two seam on the tracks. If I put my fingers directly on both of those tracks, it would sink more. If I put them in between the tracks, put my fingers together in between the tracks, it would run more. So I was trying to use the run early in the count and the sink later in the count. Um, so that was one of like the tricks that I learned just from playing with grips and playing in bullpens um, on how to make the ball move. And it was one of, one of the things that got me out of jams is if I knew, you know, there's a runner on first and I needed a ground ball, you know, I'm throwing the sinker um, instead of the runner. So it was, you know, really just playing around with the ball that, that got me, that got me um, to, you know, got me to be successful um, in those very early years at New Mexico. And walk me through developing a screwball. According to your BA draft report, you had a true screwball because there's all there's always the talk of oh this guy throws a screwball or you know gyro ball whatever it might be. You had a true screwball. A lot of fun YouTube highlights. Yeah, um, I would say it's a true screwball. And that was my sophomore year. I was still really trying to figure out a changeup, and uh, it was really terrible. And I just I for some reason. I had a good sinker at the time and I couldn't translate that into just a changeup. Um, so it was in the fall that I was just trying to, to release the ball differently. And I, you know, kind of ran upon uh, proning, pronating my wrists a, a little further over the ball uh, instead of really releasing, you know, it straight through my fingers. I rolled my fingers over the baseball and it moved and I couldn't understand what I did. And so I kept repeating it. And then I saw the spin was different. You know, it was instead of kind of rotating it sideways, like fully sideways, it started rotating over the top a little bit further, um, almost like a reverse curveball spin. So, you know, if you throw a change up kind of low three quarters, it'll spin on its side and that'll get it to sink. But this started rotating over the top. And the more I kept pronating my wrist, the more and more it rolled over the top. Um, and I just knew it moved like hell. You know, as soon as I started throwing it, I was like, there's this, there's something here. I have no idea what I'm doing but I'm going to just keep doing it and see what happens. When you harness that and get it game ready to the point where you can come set in a game and have confidence in throwing that, did you then enjoy facing righties more than lefties? Absolutely. I love facing big power righties. I mean, even in the big leagues, it was a lot of fun. Um, but I think it maybe it moved probably the most that sophomore and junior season that, you know, in a way I didn't really know the mechanics of it. 
I was just throwing it. But it was, I think, I mean, that I think that's why my ERA and my numbers were crazy inflated my sophomore years because I still couldn't really locate it where I wanted to. I knew it was a strikeout pitch and I would, I would just throw it below the zone um, more, more times than not. So it was, uh, it was one of those pitches that it was for effect uh, in the beginning. And it took me a while to really understand where it was going at that, at that time too, it was a, a really true screwball. I could throw it almost at like a righty's chin and it would go down to the strike zone. Oh my gosh. Um, so it was, I mean, it was something that, you know, it just kind of fell into my lap. Um, tr- you know, working from a really awful changeup to something that moved like that. Um, you know, it was, it was pretty incredible switch for my career. Did you find comfort backdooring that on a lefty, like starting it way in the righty batter's box and having it come back in? Not really. Um, I just threw it down the middle at that point. (laughs) If it got in the strike zone, I had confidence you weren't going to barrel it. Um, so if I didn't, I just wanted to throw the hell out of it and I was hoping it was going to get in the strike zone and I just had confidence you weren't going to hit it. So that was where my head was at at that point. So you, you seem to tighten everything up by that junior year. Like I said, you cut your, your ERA by four runs, your batting average against by almost 70 points. You have a better K ratio, better walk ratio, just everything. Your first team all conference. Did you, did you think from there? It's like, I, even if maybe you weren't getting as many pro looks as you like, did you think I will play professional baseball at this point? That was definitely in my head. Yeah. Um, one thing that helped really knock all that stuff down was finding a, a slurve. Um, I had a new new pitching coach at the time in New Mexico, Ken Hockamy, and he worked with me on finding a slurve that really, uh, you know, obviously in between a slider and a curveball, but something that fit in that low three quarters arm slot that I had, um, but really something to complement the the screwball too kind of splits the plate up a little bit and I was I, I immediately got the hang of it and I was backdooring um breaking balls to righties and and you know it was my strikeout pitch to lefties so I would say more than kind of more than the screwball that's what really turned the corner for me in my career was that was finding a slurve um but yeah I think I think the moment that really solidified to me um, kind of that I was ready to go play. Um, You know, we were playing San Diego state. They were in the conference and Tony Gwynn was their manager. And you really didn't see Tony during the games. He would sit in the dugout kind of in the shadows, do his like orchestration of the team, you know, do some like face signs. And, you know, that was kind of it. But, um, you know, I, I threw a really good game against him my junior year. I don't necessarily know the, the numbers of it. But I remember shaking his hand after the series, and he said something to the effect of, like, go get him in pro ball, kid. And, you know, obviously, like, Tony Gwynn was, is the man. He's, he's a legend. And, you know, to hear 
something like that from someone like him, it was just kind of one of those moments that, uh, that I won't forget, but, you know, I thought like, you know what, maybe I am ready. Maybe I, maybe I can make that jump. Oh, six was still, it was still a 50 round draft. How long did those, I guess those 45 rounds feel for you? <laughs> well, I only had a few teams, uh, calling me before the draft and no one was willing to, I mean, I was 10 and zero, like one of the top 10 players of the year. Um, and they weren't offering, no team was offering me more than like $5,000. <laughs> like I, like I was a senior sign or something. And so, you know, I was like, I'm not going to sign for senior sign money. <laughs> like I knew what I was talking about. And, uh, you know, the Rangers, the, I think it was the, the A's, the Marlins, maybe, um, there's only uh, just a few, but the Ranger scout was the only one that was like, you need to sign now. <laughs> he was really kind of lecturing me like, this is an opportunity. Um, but those rounds were very long. Um, but I was actually sitting in summer school at the moment that I got drafted. Um, so I was just kind of like, you know, studying, doing, doing some work in class, uh, on campus at UNM. And I just started getting blown up with texts and I was like 45th round, <laughs> one of the very last rounds. Very cool. Um, it was still a, you know, a really great moment. I, I remember it with, um, you know, just being really happy that I, that I got taken at all. You know, it's just even getting the call to do that or getting my name drawn is, is quite the, um, quite the feat and quite the, um, you know, quite the, the joy from, from just being a, a baseball fan, you know, being a baseball head from being a little kid kind of one of those dream moments. Um, but yeah, I was still kind of an asshole. Like I'm not going to sign from for $5,000. Well, so um, this guy's telling you to sign. They're not offering you a ton of money. He's confident in your BA draft report. It says the scout called in announced over the speakerphone that you could get Albert Pujols out right now. So he was a believer. <laughs> he was the man, Rick Schroeder. But- it's He's it's the forty fifth it's the forty fifth round. They're not offering you a ton of money. The alternative is you're going to New Mexico for free. You're going to be a starter. You're going to be the Friday night guy. That that whole thing. Why sign? I told I told him I was like I'll just go my senior year. I'll break all the New Mexico pitching records. Um, I'll be the best pitcher in New Mexico history, and then I'll get five thousand dollars next year. I was like, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, and he was like, well, let me, let me get back to you. If I get you X amount, will you sign? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. <laughs> so, um, no, nah, he was the man. He, he definitely talked me up to whoever he needed to, um, and got me to go. So it was, it was, um, very big ups to him. Rick Schroeder. He was, uh, he was on my side from the, from the jump. And what, what got you across the finish line? $20,000. $20,000. Did yeah. you did you know how much minor leaguers made monthly before before $20,000 got you across the line? No. None. Okay. 
<laughs> I got, I had no clue. And I, I mean, not, not that I thought $20,000 was a lot of money. He was just like, I'm telling you, there's not going to give you any more money. <laughs> so um, it was take it or leave it. And, you know, when it was finally down to like, my ego to sign for more money or, or go play a dream. I was like, well, let's do it. So you do the, like the complex league pit stop, they fly you in, you throw a couple complex these games and then they, they give you an aggressive assignment to the Cal league. Like not only is it high a, but it's, it's the Cal league, which is a lot of, a lot of hitters, ballparks, um, very familiar, you know, very similar to the mountain West, I guess. Is there any conversation from the Rangers of like, Hey, this is an aggressive jump. We think this of you, whatever. Is it just like, a, hey, go here and pitch? We're sending you here just because on a whim. I got extremely lucky to have that opportunity. Um, I don't think they had. I think they were were initially sending me to um, the Northwest Northwest League, usually where they send all their college guys. Um, but during my stubborn negotiations for twenty thousand dollars. Um, I think that roster was filled up and it took like three weeks to, uh, they had to, you know, talk to all their bigger round guys. I think it takes them a while to get to their 45th round negotiations. Um, <laughs> but I don't think, I just don't think they had a place for me up there, uh, in the, in low a, um, so that's, was the rookie ball stop and, um, around comes the futures game. Uh, in July, early July, and um, Eric Hurley was one of their prospects at the time, and he was in high A starting, and um, they needed someone to fill in, and they could have very easily got someone from low A um, to do that, but whoever was in charge of this, these decisions, you know, gave me the opportunity to go, to go there to, to high A and fill in. And it was four days and I'm pretty sure I pitched three out of the four days and I struck almost everybody out for those three days. And, um, um, I think I had so much confidence at that time you know, being in rookie balls facing 18 year old, you know, I was only 21 at the time, but I was like, man, these are kids. And I had a lot of fun pitching there just because um, not that it was easy for any, any stretch, but it just helped me build confidence. Like I, you know, I can do this, but then I went to high A and these dudes are, you know, I thought college dudes were grown men. Um, we had a guy on our team, Ben Harrison, who was just a monster and, you know, I've never seen baseballs hit like that, you know, from that team. Um, and so once kind of the shock of being up there with, uh, in a different organization kind of wore off, you know, you just kind of put your hat down and, and go pitch. And like I said, I think I struck almost everybody out in multiple inning outings for three out of four days. And as the, as the story goes, like the aforementioned Ben Harrison um, talked to the manager there, Carlos Subero and said, Hey, why are we sending him down? We need him here. If, like 
if this team like feels like winning, why would you send him back? And so I think he fought for me to the manager and the manager fought for me to, to go back. And before my, my wheels landed back in Arizona, a ball, they told me to pack my bags and go back. So it was one of those, um, you know, luck, luck and taking, taking advantage of the opportunity that, that, uh, got me there for the rest of the year. So after that, you carry a one, four, five ERA in that first pro season over 62 innings after a debut like that, you've shown, you can get hitters out, you can get advanced hitters out when you transition to the off season, what's the focus? Like when you see almost nothing but success over a 12 month period, where do you look to for areas of improvement? Um, I was looking for um, a different fastball. I was looking for cutter. Really. I was looking to add to the repertoire of stuff that I had. I was at that point, three pitch pitcher, um, sinker, screwball slurve. Um, and I wanted, uh, another fastball to kind of cut the plate up a little bit more with fastballs, you know, being a low velocity guy, I would get into stints of throwing too much off speed. Um, you know, starting the, starting the, the at bat pitching backwards, meaning backdoor breaking ball, um, you know, second pitch screw ball. But then I'm like, man, he looks really terrible on that screw ball. I'm just going to keep throwing it until he like screws himself into the ground. So there were times where I just throw nothing but off speed. And I just knew that that wasn't, that wasn't going to be an effective um, plan of attack, you know, in, in levels ahead. So I was looking to get another fastball and I wanted to gain velocity. I mean, kind of the story of my life is trying to get stronger, throw harder. Um, it didn't happen. I still threw the same, <laughs> but I, uh, I think uh, another thing I was, I was really wanting to improve, um, was just overall strength. I was really focused on my legs at that time, getting bigger and being able to withstand, you know, a hundred innings a season or, uh, as a reliever, 50, 60, 70, 80 outings. You know, I heard a lot of stories about Eddie Guardado, everyday Eddie, they called him twins. I legend, wanted baby. I like really, Guardado. I just like wanted to be him so badly. Like, I want to be the, the guy they call on every single day. I'll pitch five out of seven days and be extremely happy with that role. So that was kind of my focus on like, yes, trying, trying to transition in myself and from that starter mentality to, um, to relief and what kind of reliever I wanted to be. So it was that kind of mental transition that I think helped me out was was trying to prepare myself for a longer uh, season out of the bullpen. And as far as the, I guess the off field transition, you, we mentioned minor leaguers don't get paid a lot. You sign for $20,000 when you're learning how to stretch that money out, live in the minors, how, you know, when you're trying to put all this work in, especially in the off season, when you're not drawing a paycheck or at least a baseball paycheck, how much time did you have to devote to other work or making ends meet in order to get that training in? I was living that first off season. I lived at home in Odessa with my dad, um, which 
arguably not a great idea. Um, but got all my work in, it was, you know, he helped me out financially quite a bit. Um, so he allowed me really to focus on baseball and, you know, he's, he was my coach growing up and he knew how it, what important it would be for me to just focus on baseball. So I was thankful to him that he, you know, he helped me out when I needed it most. 2007, you make it to double A Frisco pretty early on. You're thrown well. If you think back to the back to then to that, I guess on the way up or like eat, you know, even your other stops, triple A, what have you, you're, you're not getting paid well. You're riding the bus long days in front of very few fans in some instances, all that stuff. I'm, I'm touching on this from an article I read about, about your art and stuff like that. When you talk about the stress, stress of playing, is there more stress in that scenario where you are trying to make it trying like hell to make it or more pressure, more stress when you're pitching in the big leagues? Um, I think obviously I think it's a different kind of, of stress, but the stress in the big leagues um, is really, really just geared towards, you know, staying there and, um, you know, the task at hand. Um, obviously, the financial aspect of that is nowhere in sight. And you're really focused on like, well, how do I, how do I stay here? What do I need to do to stay here? But the minor leagues, there's, you know, you have all your teammates are in a way like your enemies as well. You're all kind of vying for the same spots on the same team. And then you go to the next level and it's the same guys, same spots in the same team. Um, so that was really difficult for me to really grapple with is, um, you know, wanting to be friends with all these, these guys that I'm trying to beat out. Um, I thought that was really stressful uh, from the very beginning is, you know, competing, actually competing with, with your teammates. Um, but the financial part was totally, <laughs> totally one that was on most everyone's mind. If you weren't, uh, one of the draft babies or, um, you know, had any, any previous, uh, family support, you know, we were all just kind of like, let's let's grab this PB and J and take it home for like breakfast in the morning. Uh, so that was absolutely a stressful point. And you know, we all hang on to that stress because of the the dream ahead. You know, it's it's worth for me. It was worth the struggle. It was worth you know those those times of you know cold cuts and PB and Js that you know, that's, that's part of the, that's part of the climb to the top. Does that inner competition thing of like, I'm competing against my teammates go away when you get to the bit? Is it suddenly like, okay, yeah, let's, let's win these games for the reds. Or is there still that inner aspect of the bullpen where there's four guys who aren't going anywhere, but everyone else could be headed back to Louisville tomorrow? Not, no, I would say it's all about team winning. I mean, you know, in, if you don't have a contract, which i never did, you know, there are dudes down there that they're like this lefty throws 95. Like if there is an inch that he can like wiggle up there, you know, he'll take his spot. So 
I thought about that every now and again, but at the same time, like the spot is taken. Like I'm, I'm here. I'm, I belong here. Um, and like, I'm not going to let anybody take it. So not, I, I think it's totally different there. It's, it's really all about the team. And I think that's really what makes the big league special is it, it is a very, very team driven environment that once a team does kind of come together that way, like some special things can really happen. Um, but the climb, the climb there, I thought was, I thought was stressful and different. Well, speaking of the climb, speaking of the Reds, 07 all season, you get traded to the Reds. Interesting trade, like a monumental trade, really. Uh, you and Edinson Volquez go to the Reds. Josh Hamilton goes to the Rangers. A lot of success both ways in that trade. It's a, sm- it's a small trade. A lot of times when prospects are traded, it's like, you know, five of them going for one guy. It's You've got the small trade. How, how did you personally evaluate that trade? Like you as a person, you're a guy who has a new employer, has to go impress new people. Like, how do you, how do you grapple with that? It's the, the only profession in the world where it can be like, okay, you're going to Cincinnati. You've got to impress all these new people. And you had absolutely no say in the matter. Well, first of all, I didn't think I had any trade value whatsoever. I mean, <laughs> a, like a 45th rounder. Yeah. Like I'm in double a, like my first full year. And I think I threw okay. Like a high three ish. But I was watching Edinson Volquez pitch in double A that year. And that dude was throwing 97, 98, the entirety of the game, seven innings. And I could uh, fully understand seeing him, you know, other organizations wanting that guy. And he was he was an absolute stud. Uh, And obviously, Josh Hamilton, his his story was wild and he could hit balls. Uh you know, that nobody else could and totally see why the Rangers want him. But in my evaluation, I'm like, are you sure they said my name? I am positive. I asked that from the very beginning. Like, are you sure there's not another Herrera that is <laughs> that the Rangers have? Um, so I was really, really shocked. Uh, honestly, was very shocked that I would be included in such such a trade. Um on that 07 season, I went to the Fall League and I was playing uh, under the Rangers banner uh, for that for that Fall League. But our, uh, you know, they kind of mash up teams together um, and the Reds were on that team. So I had um, my teammates some of that year were some of my teammates in the big leagues, Chris Dickerson, uh, Sam LeCure. Um, so I think maybe the Reds were watching me during the fall league and sign it kind of something click for them uh, as well, that maybe I was a guy that they would want. Um, but again, I was incredibly shocked and like, you know, in a way I was like really honored to be a part of just a big league trade. It was so, it was like, in a way it's like really fun. Like right, the Rangers were my childhood baseball team. I would go there every summer to watch them play. And I was a fan and I was like, I'm going to be a, big league texas ranger and then at first i'm like wow that's crazy i'm part of a trade and then like damn it i wanted to be a texas ranger uh and then you know all of it wears off and i'm like damn that was really cool i got to be a part of a big league trade and it ended up being a really good one for both teams yeah and you go to so you go to the reds organization uh you throw well in chattanooga and then you're in louisville pretty quickly and the thing with 
the thing with being in the bullpen, you ju- you just need one opening. You just need one guy to, you know, one one guy to sneeze and strain his back or something like that. So how much like cuz you're you're thrown well in Louisville like that year you carry a 278. So every day you're going to the ballpark like how how often would you say you thought about the call when you get to AAA versus like versus like say you're in you're in high A or whatever. Like how often in AAA how much time does the call getting the call occupy in your brain on a daily basis? I would say not much. I was in Louisville for a month and a half before I got the call. So I was in Chattanooga for a month, Louisville for a month and a half. And then I was in the big leagues for my, my debut. So I didn't, I was having so much fun and I was getting like meeting new friends and going to like really fun places to play baseball against like former big leaguers. I remember um, just facing an old big leaguer that I had watched on TV for a long time. And I was like, holy sh- I'm, this is it. Like I'm, I will at some point, but at that, at that, I didn't really compute like, like, oh, or like looking at stats, like, oh, he had, he gave up a home run. Like it could be any day now. Like I was just having so much fun. Um, so you were doing the, the fan, Hey, remember some guys thing when you were pitching in triple A. Cause that's the coolest part about going to triple A games is seeing the guys who were like, who were guys and they're trying to get back. Like that's, that's the cool, that's the, the coolest part. So you at 22, 23 years old are thinking the same thing in your head. Like, wow, I, I've seen that guy. I've watched that guy. Yeah. I definitely, you know, noticed immediately like fanning out. I mean, I'm at, I think it was 23 at the time. Um, so totally fanning out on um, guys on rosters. I'm like, uh, oh, the guy's name was Tony Bautista. Oh, um, dude, yes. So he <laughs> was stance. playing. Oh, my God. That beautiful, beautiful baseball stance of his. I saw him like, you know, like look straight on at the pitcher and then just like, turn his his hands and i was like in such awe of like hey he's just a legendary big leaguer hits you know i don't know how many home runs he hit or his his stats but that stance was everything and it made me really happy to be on the same field as that guy that was a a first ballot hall of fame wiffle ball stance the tony Tony (laughs) batista got it it so it was beautiful. Walk me through the call and then walk me through the debut. Cause most debuts are, Hey, we're down nine to nothing. Let's let the rookie pitch. Yeah. The call. Um, so I had pitched multiple innings for two days in a row in Louisville. Um, and I'm just killing there. Um, I'm not really thinking about, you know, getting the call up or anything, but I, I threw multiple innings two days in a row and, you know, our manager, Rick Sweet, um, who was a phenomenal guy, loved him, loved playing for him. Um, he was just like, hey, just uh, stick around. Uh, I got something. To, I got something to tell you. Um, so I was like, there's a ping pong table in the in the, the locker room there in Louisville. And I'm just playing ping pong. I'm having a fine time. And people start leaving. And, you know, I get all get all cleaned up play more ping pong, watch some TV and his door is shut. And I'm just like, 
honestly, I'm like annoyed at this point. Like, I just want to go home. Uh, <laughs> I want to go be anywhere but here. Um, and then honestly, it was like 30 more minutes. And he was finally like brought me in. He's got this like, he played it off really well, like this long face, kind of like low voice. He was like, well, uh, you know, it's one of these one of these things that a manager has to do. And, uh, you know, then he finally like broke the good news. And I, you know, you couldn't stop me from smiling. Um, but that call was, you know, <laughs> I was really annoyed and then it's, you know, the, probably the most happy I've ever been in my life. So it was, it was really fun. I didn't even get, you know, the, the teammate shine that, that a lot of kind of call-ups do, um, but got to, got to hang out with my friends there that I was, I was with there in Louisville um, and flew out the next morning. Uh, and that was to Philadelphia one of uh, not an easy place to play. I knew that from the get go. Um, and this was in 2008 in hindsight, they won the world series that year. So yeah, it was a, it was a wild, it was a wild uh, call up and, you know, it's a, I think it was a Tuesday. Um, it was a Tuesday game there in Philly and the whole place is sold out and going absolutely bonkers. And I, you know, I was nervous, insanely nervous through BP, through everything, just, you know, kind of in awe or kind of in shock that I was wearing a big league uniform and uh, the game started and uh, I honestly thought I would get a day off. I threw two straight days, multiple innings, and I was like, hey, I'm just going to have a nice time tonight. I'm going to kick back. I'm going to drink this cup of coffee and I'm going to enjoy this baseball game. Um, so, yeah, that definitely was not how it went. Yeah. Walk me through that because uh, it's 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 on YouTube. And again, most guys for that big league debut, if you're a reliever, it's like a oh, seven run lead. You start a clean inning or you come finish something off or something like that. And you're when you're running, like running in and you look at the situation, like, did you know when you got called in exactly what the situation was before you got to the mound? Definitely. Uh, you know, following, following the game in the bullpen, it's kind of instinct that as soon as someone gets up and starts stretching, like your mind better be in it, regardless if you think you have a day off or not. So, you know, things start cockroaches start rattling in the pen and, you know, you got to start locking in a little bit and, um, yeah, lead off guy gets on, um, but just a single and the phone rings, phone rings immediately. And I was like, yeah, definitely not going to be me. It's a, it's a three to one ball game in the sixth inning why like you have Jeremy Affelt here who is making some money and you have Bill Bray here who he's really good. I I'm good. I'm fine. And my name gets called and like I blank out for the next 20 seconds and I'm on my jackets off. I'm on the mound and I'm like lifting my hat up that I'm ready to go in the game. 
game. Like it took me maybe seven pitches to like, yep, I'm good. Let's go. And then right as soon as that happened, Jimmy Rollins hits a double and makes it second and third, nobody out. Um, and I tell them I'm ready. And then I see Dusty, <laughs> Dusty Baker walking to the mound. And I think I threw like one or two more pitches. I didn't realize that I was in the game. Um, but took the took the lonely walk down those steps. And I think the the most nervous I was at that point. I mean, just as soon as I get my hat on and you know I'm warming up, it's like it's it's habit. You just kind of lock in. But walking down those steps in the Phillies bullpen, um, they had two field crew guys open up these double doors and it's honestly like cinematic like slow motion they open it and it's forty thousand philly fans like going nuts they're about to score some runs and you know just my brain i'm like holy shit here i go and i have the slowest run into the bullpen it i think it takes me forever to just even get to the to the grass there in the infield and um, I did the wrong thing of like kind of looking around a little bit and I got really nervous again. Um, but once I, once I towed the rubber and I got on the mound, it was, you know, it was business. And, you know, at any point in my career, I was, I was totally fine with noise. I, I, I ended up like really enjoying the noise. So noise never really like got me nervous it was the sight if i just kept my hat down if i pulled my hat down low enough and i didn't have to see the crowd then i would be fine but um you know they were they were pretty loud that night but that didn't affect me and yeah man got some got some pretty pretty big outs um and left left the bases kind of loaded so you get victorino on a 6-3 intentionally walk utley Utley, who who ends up being my my nemesis, I never got him out. I don't think in maybe a dozen plate appearances. So, very happy in that moment to to intentionally walk him. I mean, not just you. He 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 got <laughs> he got plenty of people. But so then then Ryan Howard walks up with the bases juiced. Ryan Howard, known murder of baseballs. <laughs> what what like what goes through because it. There, there's guys who come up with the base issues. You just get Ryan Howard is as scary a hitter at that time as there is in the big leagues. It's business. I, I could, I could tell you before he even stepped in the box how it was going to approach him: breaking balls, fastball, cutter. I mean, it. He stands, he stands off the plate just a little, just far enough that if I throw him a fastball, he's gonna wave at a, at a cutter, and just get in the strike zone with the breaking ball and then just kind of toy around a little bit. Um, but I, I mean, I could care less who was in that box that day. Um, you know, he did get me for a home run at some point, Ryan Howard did one of the many that he hit in his career. Um, but I just attacked him. I, I kind of went for my strengths on how I face lefties and, um, you know, got him to wave at that cutter by the end of it. Uh, the next guy was the tougher at bat for me. It was, uh, Pat Burl, Pat Burl, uh, yep. Pat the bat. And 
you know, it could have gone a very, very different way. If you watch the video of the debut on YouTube, he murders a first pitch screwball. And I, he probably didn't realize how, how soft I threw it. And it was probably like 67, 66. And he murders it to like the second deck foul left. And I like smirk like the, 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 camera pans to me and I like kind of smirk like this could have been really 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 bad um but um you know long strike and I knew if I threw that at him again he was going to swing at it so kind of even from that I was like I'm going to get him in the dirt with the with the screwball to to finish him um that's not even how it went either he kind of fouled off another screwball that I threw him later in the count and at that point I had, um, I didn't, did not really know what to throw. I didn't know what to attack him with. I kind of threw everything at him and, uh, the catcher, you know, veteran dude, Paul Baco, um, behind the plate, uh, we kind of talked about it and he said, I want, I want a fastball in. And I said, let me throw him another screwball. And that's the second screwball he fouled off. And then I knew it was fastball in and I was, you know, at that point, you have to have the balls to throw Pat Burrell an 85 mile an hour fastball inside. <laughs> and uh, luckily, I hit my spot, and that was that. Punched him out too. Two strikeouts, no runs. Uh, do you do you remember who pinch hit for your spot in the order that next inning? I do. It was uh, my childhood idol, Ken Griffey Jr., sitting on. 599 home runs that i didn't know yeah oh my god i was in the dugout and i was like i will cry <laughs> if my entire childhood idol like if it all culminates in him hitting 600 home runs um which it didn't uh i think who was a pitcher um it was it was flash it was flash flash gordon flash gordon yeah yeah he walked him on four straight pitches and the entire philly stadium booed him for it but i just you know it was i it was still like one of those stupid moments like i don't even know what i did and i'm in the dugout and like pinch hitting for herrera <laughs> i was like holy shit what is happening right now so um, that's another thing with like the star thing we were talking about. Like, you, you know, you see a guy and you, you see Tony seeing Tony Batista is one thing when you're in the dugout with, with Griffey, there are guys who he is your coworker. He is also in his late thirties. He has more money than anyone. He's Ken Griffey jr. There's, there's one of that guy. Is it a, is it a Mr. Griffey situation? Is he, is he approachable? Like, how do you go about that? In, in, in the locker can you talk to him like a, like a normal person like do you personally do you feel comfortable it's like nothing about him do you feel comfortable talking to him as Danny Herrera or are you like Mr. you know Mr. Mr. Griffey can can I can I borrow something from you <laughs> <laughs> um I I was in the only time I talked to him I definitely didn't like go up to his locker and like like shaky voice, Mr. Griffey, can I have an autograph, sir, please? Um, I was in the, I was in the training room, um, cutting sleeves 
um you know from the full sleeves i like i just like cut off the the bottom of it because i might have some short arms they don't make they don't make uh big league big league garb with uh short arms and short bodies <laughs> so i had to do some do some maintenance but i was in there just like cutting cutting up some uh some sleeves and he sits next to me on the in like the training table and his knees were like blown up and you know he was um probably in some good pain but getting some treatment on his knees and just sitting there and i maybe talked to him for like you know five minutes um but it was just kind of the normal like like hey kid like where'd you come from and i'm like i i got traded over here you know <laughs> so i don't even know what was really said i think i kind of i was too much you know in shock um to even I definitely told him like he was my childhood idol I had posters of him on the wall and you know all that I'm sure he got that all the time um but it was just I mean he was very very cool person for that from that first uh from that first conversation I definitely didn't get to talk to him very much after that but um he was definitely one of those moments that that um really sets in you're in the big leagues yeah and you mentioned Dusty. Talk to me about Dusty, because you're, you know, we're we're recording this before the World Series. It'll air after the World Series, so, you know, we don't we don't know if Dusty gets that ring. But is, you know, again, a kind of a star thing of like Dusty had been doing it for a long, long time before you got there. He's still he's still doing. He's still finding a way to relate to guys fifty years younger than him. Does that does that surprise you at all with your experience with Dusty? Not at all. I mean, he is a cool character. I think um, I understand Dusty more in hindsight than I than I did while I was there. You know, he was he was trying to mentor players, you know, without doing doing kind of making a big deal out of it. He would just drop you a line here. He would drop you a line there. Um, but he was extremely relatable. He wanted to be personable to, to players from what I saw. And I think that's, you know, I think that makes him who he is. I think he's, he wants to be a part of the clubhouse in, in a way that he wants to know who his players are. Um, and him and I, you know, we got in our short time together, talked about jazz music. We got to talk about, um, I asked about some of his old stories and, and stuff like that. He's got tons of great stories. Um, some of the best stories and him talking about like Satchel Paige and different things like that. I think he, um, there is definitely no, uh, no, no reason, you know, that he needed to stop before. I mean, I think he's, he's, still plays well into today's game and today's players. And uh, I think that's exactly what makes them successful. So you get seven innings in the big leagues during that first year. Did, did that put more or less pressure on you in big league camp in 2009? Uh, I think it put less pressure on me um, in a, in a way that, you know, I at least knew I could do it. Um, you know, believing you can do something and actually doing something or can be two totally different things. So putting those two things together and the physical that 
I physically can do this. You know, I faced, you know, the heart of the Phillies order. I faced so-and-so. Yeah, I gave up a home run or two, I think, that those seven innings. But I can compete. I can totally, you know, make adjustments and, um, you know, kind of be a staple in a bullpen. And I think it took less – took pressure off of me. But at that same time, they signed Arthur Rhodes – um to be their setup guy their setup lefty there um so in a way there was like man there's only one spot on this one other lefty spot on this bullpen and I've got to fight for this and you know it was it was up to me and um Bill Bray who was has been in the league at that point for like four years and through I mean he's he was a dependable lefty for a long time for the Reds and, you know, I wanted to believe from the very beginning that I could fight for that spot. But in a way, I sort of understood that that was his spot, um, you know, maybe even his spot to lose. But, you know, that that 2009 spring training was really special for me that I got under the wing of Arthur Rhodes and he took a liking to me and we palled around a lot. And he really helped me, um, I think, know what to expect um, from the bullpen and being a lefty in the bullpen. And we got along really well. And alongside of that, same with uh, David Weathers. They were both, you know, just absolute veteran dudes who has been in the league for 16, 17 years. They were 39 and 40 years old and they, took to me very well and I was very appreciative of of their help at that you know my rookie year um and that also coupled with I didn't give up a run the entire spring training I think I I don't know how many innings I threw or games I threw but I know for a fact I didn't give up a single run regardless of what spot they put me in you know if it was back to back or multiple innings or one batter um so I I did the necessary things on the field to show them that, you know, if you choose me, I think it's a great decision. So. That gives you a good chance to make the team when you don't give up runs. It's like the the number one requirement of your job. Yeah. It, that goes to like, you know, one of something that I heard when I was younger and kind of really took to was, you know, make them notice you like, make their decision easier just be the player be the guy that they can't deny you know if you, regardless of size or velocity or whatever if you show them you get outs they can't deny you so be the person they can't deny and i think that was that all culminated in that 2009 spring training that i made them have a really tough decision um and you know, very, very thankful to front office and Dusty and for Arthur and David Weathers for kind of fighting for me. And, you know, very, very thankfully I got that spot. You get the spot and you're there the whole year. What can you, I mean, the, the name Arthur Rhodes, I mean, that guy was around forever. What can you learn from a guy like that that does not have to do with, with getting guys out or be just with being a professional, being a big leaguer, being a big leaguer, 
off the field, figuring out how to handle your business, that is a different animal than being in the minor leagues. Like what is it, what tutelage can a guy like that help you with that you might not have been able to figure out on your own? Arthur was all mentality. He was such a bull. Um, I mean, even off the field, he was in a way like you better be on, you you better be on your best behavior when you're around Arthur. He was he was a veteran in in the 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 biggest of capacities, um, but really he he taught me a lot just about the mental side. You know I was already pretty mentally tough, um, but you know obviously a guy like that who's been around who's who's had ups and downs, but you know found a way to stick. Um, just really trying to to watch how he goes about his business and that dude worked out all the time he was there early he stayed late he had conversations with people um just trying to get a better understanding of things and so just being around him and not being you know not being so quick to leave the ball the ball field um you know in a way that's like our office and why would you want to leave the office like as soon as like five o'clock hits, like this is a big league clubhouse, like stick around and chat for a while. Like let's not shower for like two hours and like, let's sit in our dirty clothes and like talk about this game and tomorrow's game and next week's game. And like, you know, not baseball, let's talk about everything else. So, you know, just really trying to, trying to find out how to be a big leaguer, not just on the field, but I think Arthur was good to be around, you know, just for him being tough and, and really trying to show, show me like the work ethic and the stuff that he does to, to stick on a big league roster. You mentioned wanting to be a guy who can, you know, throw five, five games in a week. You throw 70 games that year from, you know, that's, that's a long year long year and with that with especially in the big leagues comes a lot of division games a lot of especially the lefty facing the same guys multiple times when that starts happening you start facing you know the same lefty three or four times in a year is there is there pressure to try to i don't know if keep things fresh is the word but like how do you keep switching how do you stay ahead of it as a guy who has to outsmart people with what you're going to do has to make your fastball play up and things like that like how do you it's not turning over a lineup, but really giving a different look. Yeah, that's the whole cat and mouse of pitching. And especially if you're slated to face the lefties in each lineup, um, you know, you know who you're going to face and they knew who's going to come in to face them. Um, I think a lot of that really just has to do with um, being prepared, looking at videos, um, trying to understand what they're good at, you know, what they're bad at and really trying to attack that. I, again, like not power guy in the least bit, but I would more or less look at their weakness and attack their weakness, regardless if it's my strength or not. You know, if they were, if they were, were vulnerable to like fastballs out, you know, out in zone or, um, you know, down in the zone in my head, I'm like, you know, that's not exactly my strength, 
but I'm going to throw a sinker down there and I want you to roll over. So there, there are ways that I wanted to play into their weaknesses and in a way kind of give them what they wanted, but I wanted them to, to hit it, make contact in the places that I wanted to. So, you know, the only, the only thing I really couldn't do was throw velo up in the zone. If that was a weakness, I'm gonna, I gotta go to a different thing, but you know, facing lefties is really about showing in to get them out of way. And for me, that was breaking balls and cutters and just a kind of a combination of, of each um, cutters early fastballs in breaking balls late, or, you know, I had breaking balls that were, that had more slide uh, meaning like left to right. And then late in the count, I would go, you know, up and down. So I would give them two looks at a breaking ball that, you know, seemingly looked the same. So I would change, I would change movement patterns, you know, throw them a breaking ball right down the middle and then throw one bottom of the zone that moved a little, just a little bit differently. So, you know, just, just really trying to attack hitters. Like, what did I throw them last time? Well, I'm definitely not going to throw that this time. They're looking for it. Um, so just being, being prepared, but yeah, facing lefties is, was a really fun cat and mouse game of like, I know hitters are saying like, I'm not letting that breaking ball beat me this time. And I'm like bullhead, like, Yes, it is. I'm going to keep throwing it and just keep inching it out, keep inching it down. You know, maybe I'll, I would walk them that time, but um, it was, yeah, it was a tough gig. It was a lot of fun. Playing into the aggressiveness. Exactly. So 2010, you split time between the big leagues and AAA. And a lot of time, if you're not the shutdown guy in the bullpen, if you have options left, you're going to be that guy. You're going to have to do that shuffle. Your big league numbers are better than your AAA numbers. When you go back down after tasting the big leagues and tasting the big leagues for a long time, is it harder? Is it harder to focus? Is it harder to get locked in for a triple A game after you've tasted the big leagues? Yes, it is. Um, mainly because I know I can, I can still do the job. I think I got sent down with like a mid three ERA, which, you know, for a guy with a contract, that's not so bad, but definitely for a guy kind of fighting for a job um, that's not acceptable. So I understand why I got sent down, um, but I essentially had a bad, like two weeks. I started that 2010 season really well. And, you know, I had a couple of blow up um, games really close together. And, you know, at that point, the one thing that was off, my sinker was off. It was kind of cutting instead of, of sinking, which uh, I didn't fully understand why. And that's what was really throwing me off um, during those two weeks. Um, but that's really all it took. I mean, that it took like a, a slide for my numbers to go to a, a low two to a mid three. And, you know, not having a lot of innings to, to pile up, you know, those numbers can get inflated pretty quickly and then you know the bulk of it's like well you know he's he's slipping so um you know let's make a change 
And no, I totally get it. I, I wasn't like upset. I got sent down. I just like, it did light a fire that like, I know I can do it. I want to be a staple. All it takes is, you know, just getting another opportunity. But in AAA, yeah, it's, it was tough to focus day to day. Um, the good thing about that time for me was that group in Louisville, uh, the Reds AAA was probably the most fun I had ever had um, playing baseball. Such great dudes in that clubhouse and a lot of young guys, some older guys, but um, that's what really kept my, my mind in it and, and, and everything kind of moving forward and not really getting stagnant was that it was just so much fun to play with those guys and getting to pal around with like Corky Miller. Um, he was probably my all time favorite teammate. Um, Vet- much older by that time, right? Like veteran, 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 definitely veteran, veteran. He keeps kept saying like, why am I playing still playing? Why do they keep giving me a contract? Um, but you know, again, I, I think I was just having a lot of fun and having fun playing baseball, um, for me was not a hard thing to do. Um, if it's the right group of guys and we get to go to the ball field and win some ball games together, you know, I'm all for it. And that's what kind of kept me in it. And at that point, you're like 24, 25 years old. You see a guy like Corky Miller, you see those guys in, in AAA, you see a lot of the grinders who are in their 30s still trying to do this um, when, when they could retire, especially guys with decent big league time, um, you know, even guys who like qualify for pension at that point. Did you think about what do my 30s look like at all? What is, how long do I want to do this ever? Is there anything after that? Like how far ahead can you think in the big leagues when you're, you're not locked up long-term anywhere? You definitely cannot think that far ahead. I definitely thought I'm absolutely going to be in the big leagues in my thirties and I'm 25 now by that time I'll have a contract and, you know, I'll be kind of like a, a setup guy and I just need that one, one more chance and lock up a bullpen spot and then arbitration hits and I'm, and there it goes. I'm 30. Um, (laughs) But season to season, absolutely can't think of that far ahead for very long. You know, the idea of all that is really is nice to think about. Like, of course, yeah, I want, I want to be in the big leagues for, for 10 years. Um, But reality is it is an absolute grind to, to just be consistent, you know, for my body to hold up for, you know, for them not to sign another, you know, high name, high leverage lefty guy, you know, all those things are, you know, I can only control, you know, a certain set of things. And if I just prepare myself as best I can, then maybe I can have the opportunity. So every, really every off season, I was just more preparing, like, I want to be ready for everything. I want to always every off season, I wanted to have more velocity, never did. But I was trying to prepare myself for like, what can I do to ha- to get that spot? Um, so yeah, the idea of all that uh, of my pitching in my thirties 
was definitely something I entertained, but not for very long. Well, in pitching for a spot in 2011, you it's the, the weird thing where there needs to be a roster spot cleared. They clear a 40-man spot. You're put through waivers. You're claimed on waivers. You, you go through multiple organizations in one season. When you're shuffling like that, you have a you throw great in Nashville. You're picked up by the Brewers, the lights out in Nashville. When you're shuffled through like that, it's no longer your organization, not the organization you put in this big league time with and, and put in a lot of the AAA time and never went. Does it feel, is it the same kind of feeling that there's a spot out there and I'm going to get it? Or do you feel like just another guy if you're shuffling through multiple organizations? Um, That was a strange year. Um, I definitely didn't feel like another guy just another guy or um, just kind of a, a roster spot, a field roster spot. Um, when I went to the Brewers, when the Brewers picked me up on their 40 man, I knew they didn't have any lefties in their bullpen. Um, so I knew that was a clear opportunity for me to, to fit in there. And the Brewers were on the up and up in the same division as the, as the Reds. So I knew that I could fit in, you know, facing kind of the same teams. Um, and I would be the only lefty. So if there was, if there was a way for me to be a high leverage guy, that was it. And it didn't work out. Uh, they basically told me the pitching coach and Renicky, the, the manager there, they basically told me from, from the get go, like, do not throw any fastballs. So I fa- faced, I was only up there for two days. I pitched both days. And the Cubs and the Red Sox, their scouting report only for me was to not throw fastballs. So they were just telling me to throw breaking balls and screwballs to every single person. And that really like mentally messed me up. And I just got ripped. Um, and so that just wasn't a, a very good fit for me. Um, turns out I got sent down after two days and they went, I think the rest of the year without a lefty in their bullpen. Did you take that same breaking ball thing to AAA with you? Were you like, I need, this is how they want me to throw. Or did you just go back to how you used to do things? I went right back to just doing the things the way I was doing it. And not only that, I was throwing more fastballs. I think at that point, in my career than I ever was. And I started throwing four seam fastballs. I started throwing four seam fastballs up in the zone. I just was bullheaded. Like, I mean, as a pitcher, you have to throw fastballs. You have to establish a fastball and work off of the fastball. And in a way I was like, if I can show them that I can throw fastballs, then maybe they'll give me another shot. Um, that was my mentality while I was there. And, you know, the PCL is not a really easy AAA to play in. And I killed. I, you know, was throwing fastballs in Colorado Springs and maybe throwing a cutter and then maybe throwing a screwball. But I was just bullheaded. Like, I, I want to show them that I can, I can establish fastballs. And um, it turns out they didn't want a lefty. And, but it put me on the radar for the Mets. So um, kind of to round out the question, I definitely didn't feel like a roster fill. I still feel like I had value um, for any team that, that kind of saw me. 
And I didn't think I was going to be traded again. I thought I was going to finish the year with the Brewers, maybe show them what I could do in spring training the next year um, and kind of go from there um, to make to go for three organizations in the single year was quite the experience and, and quite, quite the jump. But, um, you know, I got traded as the player to be named later for, for K rod. Um, and I was in the big leagues in, in September. So all in all that year really, really worked out that, you know, I was just doing everything I could to show my worth. And, you know, by that September, I think I threw in 16 games in September, which I don't know any, you know, at that point, the rosters could expand to, to however many they wanted, but they, I think they were just kind of testing me out to see what I could do. And I threw in more than every other ball game and I did really well. So I, I thought at that point, I, maybe I said, I set myself up to be in a good position there in New York. And then with that, that season, you go out in 2012 uh, in, in AAA, and then I, I assume just judging that an injury took you down in 2012. Yes, Tommy John. Um, it was actually even in even in spring training, I felt I didn't really have like a pop or anything uh, in that in that UCL ligament, but I mean I was letting fastballs eat as hard as I could. And it was 78, 79, like I was barely hitting 80 and just letting it go. And I just felt like a little something in there. And I knew, I knew there was something there, but I was still fighting for a roster spot. So I didn't say anything and I was still getting people out. My pitches were moving. Everything was, you know, kind of holding on for dear life. And uh, I ended up, getting assigned to triple a and uh my our manager there wally backman um i knew i was gonna get along with that guy quite well he was quite a character too but you know i think i threw in maybe three ball games and my elbow just kind of had enough and even even at that time i was getting everybody out about to say you had a one five with the torn ucl (laughs) yeah i was still i mean that was the thing too. Like I was at a point where I knew I was hurt and I didn't know to what extent, maybe I just needed like a month on the DL. Um, And at that point too, I've never been hurt in my entire career. And that was everybody's worry was like, this kid is five, six and he's going to just get hurt all the time or he can't take a big league season. And that was absolutely not the case. And I didn't know the extent of that injury or my elbow, but I was still getting people out and getting people out with 77 and 60, my screwball. And so I was like, you know, screw it. I'm just going to compete as long as I can. I'm going to try and win a roster spot and um, see what happens. And yeah, it just got worse and worse. And I finally had to say something and had a full on, full on tear. So you get, you, you know, sit out for a year. When you come back, it's with Long Island in the Atlantic League. You're now playing any ball. And that Long Island, I mean, just the roster of that team, like story time in that clubhouse had to be incredible. Uh, Ian Snell, Josh Barfield, the great Lou Ford. 
had the homie Dontrell Willis. Yeah, Dontrell, uh, past past guest of the show. Uh, That's right. I mean, big D train. Yeah. Um, but with that, what is? How would you contrast that vibe from AAA? Probably more big, more former big leaguers than in AAA. But with indie ball, the the winning matters. Right. Yeah. That I mean, that vibe in that clubhouse was was a veteran vibe for sure. You know, we had. We had all those guys you named, but then, you know, in indie ball, you have the guy that was just in college ball in Long Island, um, you know, getting to like pinch hit or pinch run kind of wide eyed and, and enjoying, enjoying the the clubhouse too. So it was, it was very much uh, an interesting clubhouse, but you know, it, it felt a lot more like uh, what I was used to in, in triple a, in minor league ball, just because those guys made it comfortable. I mean, like having, having Lou Ford just kind of around, uh, kind of quietly like going about his business. And then you have the ruckus of like Bill Hall and Dontrell just, I mean, they, they're just holding court all day long. I can see that. I think they had, they had honestly a two day, like this was like one of the first weeks that I got there that there was a group of dudes, I mean, pretty much headed by Bill Hall and Dontrell, that they had an argument for two straight days, whether Tupac was a gangster or not. <laughs> and it was the funny, I, you couldn't not be around them when some, like they would play a song, like, let me play the song. And, and like, he was gangster. And you couldn't help but just like go sit on the couch. I didn't want to be a part of the, the conversation, but I was definitely not going to miss it. So it was the, the vibe in there was really fun. Um, kept everybody loose. And that time that team was really good. I mean, it was, again, he said it was all about winning. That team was really good. Had a lot of good veteran dudes. And, but that all that does is really translates to wins. You do that. And then you also do the Mexican league. So I guess, I guess, yeah. Okay. Walk me through the Mexican league then. Cause that, that was quite, you do two, two winners in, in the Mexican league. Where does that, where does that stack up in the, in the, the list of travels? That's very high on the list. Mexico was so much fun. Um, well, being a, a Mexican from Texas who doesn't know Spanish being in the Mexican league is, uh, was quite the adventure. How much grief um, did they give you for not knowing any Spanish? They called me, the illegal. So I was the illegal Mexican in Mexico. <laughs> that was, that was my nickname there. Um, so they, they gave me a lot of stuff. They gave me a lot of uh, shit for it, but um, the baseball was so much fun and just the stadiums and the fans there. I mean, extremely passionate about baseball and that was just so much fun for me to, to be a part of. And um, you know, the, it, every game there, it's like game four of the World Series. Like, you know, there gets it's a zero zero ball game, but then first and second, no outs in the third inning, and you get the bullpen ready. You you get you get going. So it's cutthroat down there, uh, and I had so much fun. Um, a lot of crazy stories, um, but I played in in. Mexicali there on the border um on the northern in the northern part of that league um but 
just really grateful for the opportunity to go down there as well. One of the the GM there um, saw me play, and you know offered offered me to come to come play there. And man, it was it was a beautiful experience. I think other than the big leagues. I think, you know, it was my favorite stop in baseball. Never heard a bad thing about the Mexican League. So you do season in Long Island, couple seasons in Mexico, season in Somerset, season pitching for Camden, mixed results. What what keeps you coming back every season? And kind of the same conversation we had earlier about focuses outside of baseball or outside interest or anything like that. Do you ever let your mind wander to, what else do I want in my life besides baseball? Um, short answer is no. Um, I had a tough time after surgery, really coming back to full strength. Um, you know, most everyone is, you know, 12 to 18 months. I probably, my that first season in Long Island, I wasn't the same. I, I couldn't throw screwballs, really. I didn't really trust that my arm was, was healed. Um, so I kind of had a mental... Um, just like a mental strain on the stuff that I had. And I didn't pitch the way I normally did. I, I think strength-wise, I was probably as strong as I had ever been in pro ball. I was, I was really focused on working out and getting myself strong. But just the mental strain of not thinking that I was fully healed really messed with my stuff. Um. So by the time I really felt like I was healthy was that season in Somerset. And, you know, I didn't do as well as I had hoped. And I always kind of knew like I was, you know, a couple months away from getting, you know, a, getting a double A spot or getting a triple A spot. And then from there, you know, who anything goes. So my focus was just trying to get back into an organization, get on any level, and then getting the opportunity when it gets there. Um, but I don't know that I was the same pitcher uh, anymore. I I don't, for whatever reason, Tommy John um, made me just a little bit different. I don't know if my pitches didn't move as much or, again, that my I didn't really trust um, – that I was fully healed from the beginning and, and I changed mechanics or changed something. Um, but I definitely was not the same. Um, but again, I was, my heart was in it. My, my head was in it. My work ethic was, was in it. And I was, you know, after that Somerset season, I said, I was going to give it one more, one more run, one more season. And that Camden season definitely told me like it was time to go. Um, I, I knew, I knew my stuff was not playing anymore. And I think I had one outing in the summer there where I just, I, once I got out of the game, I like literally went under the bleachers and cried because I just understood it was, it was over. I think I gave up six runs before I got an out and I mean, I was bullheaded throwing everything I got and just not light hits getting hit. And as soon as I got in from that, you know, from that outing, it, I mentally, 
I just knew it was over. But I played the rest of the season. And by the end, uh, um, our manager, Chris Widger, uh, let me start. He needed a starter. So I was like, I would love the opportunity to start. So I got to kind of go out on a good little hurrah, you know, getting to start, you know, I don't know if it was seven or eight games, but to finish that season starting and, you know, trying to, trying to win ball games was, was a lot of fun. Not that I, not that I deserved a starting spot at that, at that point, but um, yeah, it was a bit, that was the toughest season and even tougher to really try to finish it out on any kind of good note because uh, it was, it was definitely told to me that it was, that it was over. Is the, is the part that, that makes you, that, that made you that emotional? Was it the, you're going to have to say farewell to baseball or was it, I got to figure out what else to do? It's both. It's everything, man. It's, you know, it's like a flood of emotions that, that the one thing that you've done for your entire life and the one thing that you're really, really good at, you can't do it anymore. And baseball and sports is that same way. It has such a short window and only like the cream of the crop really gets to play it until their body fully, fully goes. But for the rest of us, you know, it's whether it's college or minor leagues, you get to that point and you know, you have more worth, you like can feel it, you know, you're like an inch away. And then it's not there. And then you kind of try and claw back. And then for whatever reason, you know, you finally understand like it's finally time to go. And I gave myself plenty of opportunities, plenty of seasons to get myself back into the mix and get into the folds. And, you know, performance wasn't there. So, um, yeah, it's, it's everything. It's, it's, it's everything that culminates into uh, that flood of emotion that came. You hang up your cleats. When does art go from a hobby to a, a profession or at least a directive of I'm pursuing this in some form or fashion other than sketching on a napkin? Well, <laughs> let me uh, let me tell you, I played another season after that. <laughs> I was going to ask. I didn't know if baseball <laughs> reference was was wrong, <laughs> but you kept saying the Camden season was your last I season. I'm, like, I'm looking at I'm looking and seeing 41 innings for Long Island, but I'm, I'm wondering if they're wrong. But I didn't mean to. <laughs> uh, so the GM, I was living in New York at the time. I just moved to New York. And um, my brother lived in New York for, for quite a while. And I was going through like a breakup. And my brother's like, just come live with me in New York and like, just try out New York, see how you like it. And so I'm in New York. I'm just like going to shows. I'm going to like, having a lot of fun. And there was a, um, my friend told me about a, a Dominican, uh, like adult league here and in, in kind of like East Brooklyn. And I was like, that sounds like a lot of fun. I'm ready to go. Let's play. And so I'm out there just like messing around with this, this team, uh, and the baseball is wild and it's a lot of fun. So the GM of the, the ducks, um ends up calling me completely out of the blue and saying we just had six pitchers leave this week like two got signed and four got hurt he's like 
are you willing to play? He was like, I, he told me verbatim, I need bodies. And so I was like, all right, Mike Pfaff. I was like, Pfaff, I will only go play if I can throw knuckleballs. <laughs> and he said, and he said, let's go. So I, my last season, I went out as a knuckleballer um, and ended up start, ended up finishing the season starting and killing. <laughs> okay. So, but you have this and there's not any desire of like, I can come back. I can play. I can, I can find this knuckleball and, and that's my ticket back. I mean, the, I'm not fluffing myself up. I'm a man who knows how to make baseballs move. And my knuckleball still right now is nasty. Um, but I tried after that, well, that season, my last four starts of that season. And this is when I was like, all right, well, this is a new life. I'm going to come back as a knuckleballer. I threw four games, seven innings plus two of them were shutouts. I think I threw an eight inning shutout and I threw 140 pitches. I think like maybe two of them were fastballs. So everything I threw was, was knuckleballs and I did really well and I could control it. I could get it in the zone. I could make it move. I was throwing it like 77, 78. And then I would drop it down to like 70. Then I drop it down to 65. I was, I had conversations with Phil Necro about it. Like I was kind of going all out like, all right, like, I think it's good. And then we, I get it on the mound and it's nasty. And, you know, the old thing, like the catcher can't catch it a few times. Um, like it just like goes to the backstop because it moves so much at times. Just, I feel like I have new life and then empty my contacts, my call list again, like trying to find someone who wants to see it and nobody wanted to see it. So I'm training all off season training in, you know, winter, spring 2017 and the ducks won't have me back. And I looked, looked at another team and they said like, maybe in, in, in the Atlantic league and they said maybe, and then finally said no. And I was like, well, shit, if I can't even get like an Atlantic league, like a tryout, like just, just check it out. And, and then, you know, just like, well, you know, I guess that's also a sign. Like I just got to get on with life. So I feel you like know, the ducks kind of owed you a spot there, but I guess I'd, I'd, I'd uh, they, digress they, here. The, but. the ducks, the ducks are probably the, probably the, the indie organization that all the big leaguers go to. Um, so they have no, no problem getting, you know, really, really good talent at the beginning of the year. I mean, my, I got lucky in, in any instance for them to lose six dudes and from, for them to, uh, even try to try to give me a call. But at that point I was like out of shape. Like my arm wasn't even, I just like even almost told him that as a joke. Like if I come, I'll just throw knuckleballs. And he said, yes. So I was like, well, let's go. seems like kind <laughs> of a silver I'm lining on. of a way to end. It's better than, than crying under the bleachers in Camden. Like you going out on a high note. It was a lot of fun. And still at that point, I think I was like 28 or 29 
And I'm like, I'm going to be the youngest knuckleball prospect of all time. And I'm going to come back as a knuckleballer. But, you know, it, just as it goes, it I at that point, I kind of let baseball go a little bit mentally. And it really wasn't in my heart to to go through the rigor uh, anymore. So kind of once, uh, you know, I, if I if I clawed enough, I think I could have shown it to somebody. You know, I could have could have guilted somebody who liked me before into, into checking it out. But um, yeah, I, I didn't want that. I didn't want that pain anymore. So I just kind of, uh, I kind of hung them up for good. So you hang them up and then how long until, how long from cleats are finally up to, I'm going to be an artist? Uh, not very long, not very long at all. Um, I started doing ink drawings, um, just sketches and then ink drawings, but, basically like tattoo designs. I've, I've got plenty of tattoos and that's what I was interested in when I first got here um, to New York, just really incredible um, tattoo shops around and incredible artists. And I was just hawking, you know, let me get a tattoo from this guy. Let me get a tattoo from that woman. And there's guest artists that come in from all over the world and they have like limited bookings. And as soon as I see it on their Instagram, I'm like, um, book me at like one o'clock. Um, I'll be there. Um, so really my mind was in tattoo designs, uh, from the very beginning here. And so that's kind of what my, my work represented. It was just like a lot of flash drawings, um, no real color, just black, some red, but I was really just drawing tattoos that I think I would want. And, you know, then kind of got into a little more illustrative kind of storytelling, mode and that's what i was really interested in is is illustration you know telling telling a story you know through through an image and um i was dating my 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 girlfriend my now wife jamie and at the time that that i was kind of toying around with with this artwork and she was really encouraging me to to put an application into art school and I was like, I've got tattoo flash sheets. Like I, I've only done, I've only done art for like, I don't know, not even a year. Like I said, it was always plan a baseball. So once baseball is gone, I was kind of like scrambling to do whatever that interested me. And that was just drawing tattoo stuff. And so I was kind of, kind of nervous about putting in an application, but um, put in one application to Pratt Institute um, here in Brooklyn, here in New York. And they're one of the best art schools in the country. And I don't know how confident I was that I would get accepted being, you know, 30 years old. Um, Can't imagine the MLB's early. continuing education program that scholarship covers our school as well. I, I, you might be. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. I didn't even play enough baseball to cover art school money. So uh, that was a little difficult to swallow as well. But no, like lo and behold, they liked the stuff and I, I got accepted. Um, and that was like kind of like the click moment, like this is it. Like, this is exactly where I'm going. And just like baseball, I mean, I have that plan a brain that, you know, 
once I'm in something, I'm, I'm fully invested. I'm fully in it. And, and it's what I'm going to do. And so that's exactly what, what art has been ever since then, you know, taking uh, foundation art school classes was um, really inspiring and being around, you know, younger 19, 20 year old kids who just full of ideas um, was really fun and really had a lot of great professors. Um, again, kind of take me under their wing, me being the older one in class, maybe being uh, closer in age to them that they could, they could maybe talk to. Um, and I took full advantage of, of palling around with my professors, um, but got huge inspiration from lots of artists from um, anywhere I could kind of reach and really try to settle into illustration and what kind of illustration I didn't really know at the time. Um, and I was, you know, being stubborn again, I, once I was out of baseball, I didn't want anything to do with baseball. Um, I kind of wanted to make art um, and be inspired in different ways. So I was looking not for baseball work, but maybe looking for editorial work, doing political cartoons, doing, um, uh, you know, anything really editorial. I'm doing music publications now, but that was one of my goals then as well, was, was really trying to get doing illustrations for, for music magazines and publications. Um, but you know, that itch of baseball just kept, kept gnawing at me. And, you know, like I said from before, like I really attached to characters and, and people's faces. And it really got me into really wanting to do the work that I do now. And one of my biggest inspirations was the uh, Salem sportswear um shirts and artwork from when I was a kid from when we were kids um those are like the big head cartoon oh yeah okay cartoony um caricatures you know football baseball basketball um all that stuff I remember from being a kid you know like the Michael Jordan like uh world championship shirts with like Scottie Pippen and Horace Grant and you know, all those like really iconic um, uh, apparel from when I was growing up was a really big inspiration for me. But I was, I was not really into the cartoony feel of, of those. I mean, they're great for the 90s, 80s um, aesthetic, but I'm really into, um, you know, a slight kind of portrait look, uh, more refined kind of caricature. So I kind of wanted to do, and what I'm doing now is more of a portrait style um, face, more more likeness in the face, but still a cartoony body, you know, big head, small bodied, um, kind of weird poses kind of thing. And I'm really trying to sink into that, um, into that style. But you know, adding adding all my favorite things about what I learned in school was illustration, you know, telling story, portraiture, you know, getting the likeness of someone and caricature and cartoon. So really trying to wrap all that up into one neat package 
um, that I can, that I can do work with. You know, I, I, I know Dusty was, was, uh, edging up on 200, 2000 wins as a manager. Um, so I did, I did this, this painting of him, um, and how I mainly work is with watercolor, um, ink drawing and watercolor, but I did this, this drawing of him and, um, got in touch with him right before the Astros came to town this summer. And he got me some field passes for me and two friends of mine. And, um, I got to show him the artwork that I made for him and I got him to sign it for me. And, um, at that time too, I, I made some prints of my own, of me, uh, some artwork that I've made of me, uh, some screwball aesthetic prints. So I gifted him a print as well. And, um, he was really, you know, surprised that I, you know, I went into art and I went into this kind of field and, you know, I think it almost surprises everyone, but, uh, it was really, really great to show him, um, the artwork that I made for him and really grateful that, uh, uh, he signed it for me and, you know, got to talk with him on the field a little bit. Um, so that was a, that was a pretty special moment this summer. You said you didn't want anything to do with baseball. When we were setting up this episode, you sent me an email that we, we, you didn't want to schedule on a night that there was playoff baseball because you had been watching every inning. How, how did baseball, how did, how did, how did you turn back into a fan? I mean, it's my first love, you know? I had a bad divorce, but that first love just keeps keeps there, man. Baseball has really been that comfort for me, you know, whether watching it or playing it. Um, and it definitely took me a while to come back to watching it, you know. Um, Do you watch it differently now? Like a, you, a million percent. But you know, you know what the pitchers think. You know what the batters think. You know how the grass smells, like everything yeah it it's i'm turning into a fan again but a very educated fan <laughs> um it feels like once i mean in indie ball i didn't watch a single game didn't care for a world series i didn't you know i was i was away from it because i so badly wanted to get back to it um but it took me separating myself and my heart from it um, to kind of inch myself back. And art was a beautiful thing that I can, I can put my effort and my brain and my heart uh, in such a different career and not have to think about physicality, about working out. How does my shoulder feel like? Why is my shoulder clicking today? You know, I, I don't have to worry about that stuff. Um, and oddly enough, um, I do artwork and draw and all that stuff right-handed. So even all these weird things with my, my left arm, my elbow still hurts, my shoulder still hurts, but I got a nice fresh right arm that I can paint and draw with. You've got art innings so, in that arm. <laughs> I've got so many innings in this arm. Uh, so I've got a fresh career in this right arm. Um, so yeah, it it took me a while to inch back to baseball, but I mean, what made me come back is like seeing friends of mine still playing and 
my my really good friend Sam Lacure does the does um, some on camera stuff with the Reds now. Um, so I, I like tune in to the end of Reds game so I can catch his his mug, you know, talking about the game in post game. And it's little stuff like that, that, you know, having, having known some of these people, um, they, they bring me back into it as well. You know, Dontrell does on camera stuff for the Dodgers and I'm, you know, he, he has these hilarious segments, you know, after, you know, Frank Thomas and David Ortiz and the crew, and he's got some crazy D train stuff and I can't help, but want to watch it. So, you know, all that feeds me back into the storylines of players and damn, these new players today are incredible. And so I can't help again, but to pour my brain into it and my heart back into it and be a fan. So yeah, man, I, I, I don't want to miss a playoff inning and I haven't missed many of them. Um, and I just love it. I I'll still love the game a lot and, you know, very fortunate again to really have the career I did as much as I thought I'd be a 10 year big leaguer, you know, to be an almost two year big leaguer was, you know, an honor. If you could go back and give yourself a pep talk at 21, what would that pep talk look like? The pep talk, oh my gosh, in the short of it, just like, don't be an idiot. <laughs> Just like that's a universal pep talk to everyone at 20. I mean, I, you know, I guess what I, what I mean by that really is I put in all the work that I wanted to put in and I was prepared. I was mentally there, but I like to have fun. And, you know, I had some, I had some issues. I think that, weren't worked out so it all came out in um you know kind of acting out being going out at night going out late finding ways to to not do what i was supposed to do um and in hindsight you know really just if i had a pep pep talk to myself it would it would be to to start understanding who i am as a person um, at that point, I didn't understand who I was really, or why I was angry, or why I liked to go out late. Um, I I was chasing a lot of things, and including a baseball career, but I didn't really chase, you know, understanding of who I was. So, the pep talk for me would, you know, yeah, don't be an idiot, but you know, like have some quiet time with yourself, like start understanding why you do things, why you feel certain ways, and it will make you better. I got a quick rapid fire for you, and I will make it quick because you have given me so let's, much of your time. Let's go. Favorite Mountain West ballpark? Uh, BYU. The mountains are in the background. The ball flies. It's gorgeous there. I'm pretty sure your former teammate, Jordan Pacheco, said the same thing. I listened to that episode and I knew that too. <laughs> uh, favorite minor league ballpark? Um, weirdly enough, Isotope Stadium. The, your, that's, your college ballpark, basically. That's a, I went there to play in AAA with the Brewers and it's like I never left. It was, there were 
arguably just about as many fans. <laughs> so not many, but man, I love that ballpark. It was so great. Favorite big league ballpark? Uh, San Diego. Oh, I take that back. Wrigley. Wrigley for the just the gameplay the nostalgia. The gameplay at Wrigley, the stadium, San Diego. Okay. Uh, would you rather strike a guy out or generate an embarrassing ground ball, like weak contact? Uh, punch out, without a doubt. Best hitter you ever faced? Chase Utley, because I never got him out. What is your go-to Odessa, Texas food spot? Ooh. Ooh, great answer. Uh, great question. I mean, um, I mean, there's Rosa's. Yeah. Mexican food like takeout. Right across the There's the campus. barn door, the barn door steakhouse. Um, I'm trying to think of this hole in the wall Mexican spot that I went to all the time. I can't think of it right now. Um, all right, final answer would have been my grandmother's kitchen. Oh, of course, of course. That's that was that was the only place you could find a pork chop and eggs at like seven in the morning. That, I mean, I, I can't think of a better answer than that. Uh, last one. As you know, everyone gets this. Do you have a nightmare bus ride story from the minor leagues? Um, I was trying to think about this listening to previous episodes. And I want to say it was in Texas, Texas League, where we had, I don't fully remember all the details, but I'm pretty sure we had like a 12 or 13 inning game on the getaway day and it was a night game and then we had to go to midland after that so from corpus to midland was like almost 10 hours yeah on a bus yeah but not only that i got the loss in the game i got walked off and then had to get all my stuff and I forgot to play pay clubhouse dues, which is a big no, no. And then we had to get on the bus for 10 hours, starting at whatever 1am. And then we got there at noon and then I had to like go see my family. And I just hated everything about that. That was <laughs> that just the, the worst vibes. The last like, like 12 hours, just awful vibes. I, t I made a lot of bad decisions. Ever since I got walked off, just made every bad decision. Um, so, yeah, that was, I don't, maybe that was the worst one, but that's definitely one I remember just being like, I hate these bus rides. I really don't want to do them anymore. Daniel Herrera, that's all I've got for you. Thank you so much for joining from Phenom to the Farm. Appreciate it. Thank you. And that's it for today's episode of From Phenom to the Farm. Big thanks to Daniel Ray Herrera for stopping by, walking us through his career. Go check out his art, DanielRayHerrera.com. And as for From Phenom to the Farm, we'll catch you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. 
Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything from t-shirts and jeans to sweatshirts and jackets. And of course, their legendary best hoodie ever. So you can fill your wardrobe with the pieces that will get you through your spring days, like the lightweight joggers and pullovers in the French Terry collection or the rich and polished premium slub crew tee. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, American Giant makes something that's sure to be your next closet go-to. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Find a closet staple for every part of your day at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use Staple 20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code STAPLE20.